Welcome back to another episode of Actors with Issues. I am your host, Juan Ayala, and happy holidays, everyone! To get everyone into the holiday spirit, we have a special treat in store with today's guest, Marissa Gavami, who is an actor, writer, advocate, and the star of the film The Gift of Christmas, now available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. Marissa chats with us about her cross-country shoot while working on the film, the importance of approaching acting with a business mindset, and her nonprofit organization, Healing Tree. Now, please enjoy this delightful conversation with Marissa Gavami. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, when and where and how did you get started acting? Because you're one of the few guests that I've had that you know, sort of started super, super early as a working actor. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I loved it even before I was working professionally. I just loved it. I remember, you know, being really young. I mean, we're talking four or five years old. And uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And she used to tell me that the only way she could get me to like be quiet long enough for her to go do housework or whatever she needed to do was to put a video camera out in front of me because I would just watch. It started with old movie musicals. And I would watch them obsessively and memorize the parts. And then I would just like do all of My Fair Lady or do all of Bye Bye Birdie. And I didn't quite understand at that age that you couldn't audition for something that had already been, uh, you know, uh, put out into the world. I didn't really understand that yet. So I was auditioning for these musicals. Yeah. And I would go up to TJ Maxx and like ask my mom, you know, can I, can I get this top? Because this looks like this character in, in this movie. And then I would like I do the whole thing and be like, you need to send this in to the director. <laughs> um, so it, you know, um, before it was professional, it was just what I wanted to do. You know, mm -hmm. even when I was younger than that, I was listening to like Mariah Carey and trying to imitate her with like a remote control in my hand <laughs> at, you know, two, three. Yeah. So um, I always knew. And then when I was about six, I learned that there was an arts and leisure section in the paper, in the newspaper. And I would bring my parents auditions, you know, and say, mm. can you drive me to this audition over in say, Indiana, you know, a state away. And so um, luckily they were very supportive and kind and, and they allowed me to. So I, I did a community theater piece when I was like six, maybe a couple. And then I was very fortunate that there is a youth conservatory in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where mm. I grew up and actually where I'm quarantining now. There's only a few throughout the country. So it was truly a, a privilege. Um, and at seven, uh, they let me start a year early because that year I also worked in an equity theater, a regional theater house. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I, I auditioned for this play. It was a Christmas play. Uh, it was, um, what is it? Uh, the best Christmas pageant ever. And mm. so I auditioned for that. And that was the first time that I was like hired as a professional actor and that there were actors from New York who would come in to, to join the company as well. Mm. Uh, and I joined Walden that year. So I guess, you know, it was just through sheer, I want to do this. And, and how am I allowed to do this? Mm. You know? Yeah. And you're fortunate to be in an area where there were um, pretty affluent in the arts. Yes. Yes, know. Actors Theater of Louisville is here, you yeah. know, Kentucky Center for the Arts. We had a lot of opportunities that that I don't know if I realized at the time how fortunate I was, but growing mm. up and, and, you know, hearing from friends who maybe didn't grow up in, in a place like that, I, I realized that that was really um, uh, just a huge blessing and, and really fundamental in, in shaping me into the artist that I am today because I got to start so early. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear, um, you know, young, young kids or uh, actors that started rather young and then you know it's like sort of in hindsight you're like wow like I had all of this yeah happen to me because 
Yeah. Uh, you know, as an adult, it's like, you know, we're gunning for that, for that sort of sure. get equity points and to work with, sure. you know, and all that. Um, so that's amazing that you were that driven in like passion as a kid. You're like, Hey, <laughs> here's an audition, mom. Can you here's this me? audition. Yeah. It was fun. And then, and then once that started, you know, you, you kind of just get known in your community. And so then mm. I would, you know, get to work more and more. And I, I also did some modeling early on. My mom had modeled. And so I guess she was still maybe doing some and brought me on a set. And then I got really snooty and was like, I just want to act. I don't, this isn't speaking. There is no talking involved. So there's no acting and I want to act. And, you know, looking back too, I told my mom recently, I said, you know, you should have just told me, do these national campaigns, make money and put yourself <laughs> through theater school. Like te yeah. teach the kids something about life here. But no, she was very kind and said, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Mm. So. Which is, is also is very fortunate because so many young actors have like the sage moms or the momagers oh who put them out oh for gosh. everything. And no, 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 no. If, yeah. if anything, my parents were sort of the opposite of that. Like I remember mm -hmm. working in, in LA when I was like 16 on a, on a uh, set for what was it without a trace. And, mm. you know, I just had a little co-star and they needed my mom to be on set because I wasn't 18. And she said, you know, I'll just wait in the dressing room or I'll wait, you know, I, I don't want to, she was always sort of uh, not trying to be involved with all that, yeah. not because she wasn't supportive, but because she witnessed the momagers and the stage moms and was sort of horrified by it. And, yeah. you know, had I wanted to be a dentist, my parents would have been just as proud and supportive. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it just, it had nothing to do with, with their dreams or anything. My dad is a, or was a, a restaurateur and my mom was a stay at home mom. So they didn't care. Yeah. That's so funny to hear that, you know, that they it's not not to say that it's rare to hear that parents can be supportive, but you know, with the arts, parents can be a little worried or paranoid, right. maybe, or just concerned that it's like, you know, making it and and, and yeah. their eyes is so different from what we think making and it. And I think that that's valid to an extent, right? Like right. you want your children to to be able to pay the, their own bills as mm. as adults, right? And I think that that part of it is valid, but I had a really um, business-minded approach to the industry, I think, super mm. young. Um, I won the Apollo when I was 12, and it took me out to L.A. quite young, at, at 12, 13. And so I saw L.A. is very business-minded. New York is is more creative-based, I think. And, and I like them both. I mean, New York really has my heart, but I, I really like parts of L.A. as well. And so at a really young age, I realized, though, the business side of it. So I remember being like 14 and once I had this, this manager who found me at the Apollo, she produced the Apollo and she had actually discovered Michael Jackson at the Apollo. Oh. So I had this big kind of legendary manager uh, and I had an agent and I had some meetings set up. And so it wasn't just like, I want to be famous. I want to go to LA. It was, mm. hey, mom and dad, let me sit you down with a, with a folder that says Marissa's Guide to Financial Independence. <laughs> I was 14. <laughs> and I said, look, I, uh, dad, if you'll give me your restaurant, um, on like a night that it's closed, I will do cabaret nights. And, and so mm. I raised like 14 grand over several months, um, because I had a lot of support in, in my hometown from the various shows that I had done throughout the year, the years. And so I said, I've raised this money. I have these reps 
And I want to do this not just because it's some whim, but because I've dedicated myself to this since I was seven years old and I've sort of exhausted the opportunities where I am and what an amazing experience. And given all of that, will you support me to do this? So I think, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that if I had just said, I want to go out to LA, you know, at 10 years old, my parents would have been like, sure. You know, it, it wasn't that. It was very well thought out. Um, there were real concrete opportunities and I was taking responsibility for myself and not asking them to foot, you know, absolutely every bill. And, you know, so um, they were, they were thoughtful about it. They weren't just like, whatever you want, kiddo. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's uh, refreshing to hear that you were so business minded, so young, because to this day, I mean, I know actors that are like 30 or 35 who yeah. still have no business approach to it and don't treat, yeah. they, they think it's all show and no business. And it's more business, really, in reality. Do you think that that's the fault of conservatory, you know, college programs? Why, why do you think that is? Because I find that painfully uh, common as well, just in yeah. my friends and colleagues. Um, you know, I honestly don't know. Uh, I'm not a fan of the idea of conservatories, of like, you're going to eat, sleep, live and breathe mm -hmm. the arts mm -hmm. every day. I got my theater degree from a community college. So I had to cool. go to theater 101 and acting and voice addiction and then to accounting and bio. And <laughs> sure, algebra. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I was preparing myself a bit and keeping these skills, these real life world skills, if you can consider biology a real world skill um, or anything <laughs> sure. like that. Um, I know quite a lot of people who um, have gone to conservatories um, or uh, academies of acting or, you know, there's so sure, many in sure. New York, especially. Um, and, you know, they don't teach you a lot of the business. Uh, it's all on craft, which, yes, yeah. is incredibly important, but also Absolutely. you need to know how to type yourself and how to, you know, what your headshots have to look like and how to build your website and how to promote yourself and all that stuff. It's so many different factors and um the majority of actors, or at least younger actors now, are focusing entirely on craft, which obviously training is very important, but it right. has to be a balance, you know? Yeah, I, I would like to tell my friends sometimes, you know, because sometimes it's my most talented and skilled friends, I feel like, who, mm. and, and that's not across the board, but, you know, there's certainly people that I know who I'm just like, wow, your work is just absolutely amazing. However, if you don't understand the business side of it, mm. your work isn't really going to be seen by many people, you know, if you yeah. can't really put yourself out there. So I started sort of, you know, low-key coaching actors when I was in my young 20s. I, I went to the William Esper studio and, and mm. got to study with the late, great Bill Esper. And um, and I didn't go to college. I, I deferred my acceptance to NYU and USC for a year. And then my life kind of took a different turn. But later I, I studied it at the Bill Esper studio. And, mm. you know, I, I noticed early on there that a lot of my colleagues and classmates, you know, they were so amazingly talented and skilled. And then when it came to like going to an agency meeting, they were paralyzed. And so I sort of started helping them. Um, and, and it, it turned into, you know, oh my gosh, I'm doing this all the time. So I sort of, you know, not, not as like a, a main career thing, but just offered coaching to actors because I realized that if I gave them the tools and the knowledge about mm. it, just like the craft of acting, if you're properly prepared, then a lot of that anxiety goes away. But there's yeah. not a lot of preparation that we're given, you know, in, in class oftentimes. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing now that some of the most like talented, skilled actors that I know, um, 
you know, when they go to like an agency meeting or a manager meeting or a workshop with a casting director, sure, um, their scene is great, but you don't always get those scenes when you go to an agency meeting. It's not, mm -hmm. they don't always give you something to read right. or something like that. So there's so many other elements going into it that, um, like when they say, tell us about yourself, don't say anything that's on your resume because they saw your resume right. already. Like right. about you, what do you like to do? Because I'll say all the agency meetings I've had, I mean, maybe I can't say all, but let me say probably nine out of 10 over the years, I have not worked in the room. Maybe they've seen my reel before or something, mm. but most of the time it's a conversation, yeah. you know, it's, it's like an interview. Yeah. Yeah. Any general that I've gone to and, and or an agency meeting and one of them was over zoom, uh, cause it was during COVID. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's always just, they want to get to know you, see what you're like, see mm -hmm. if you're exactly like you are on screen or if you're the complete opposite and they're like, okay, there's sure. range there. Like, Oh, yeah, or sure. they've nailed their type. They know exactly what, what they're sort of going for. Like I play the techie and everything, the hipster techie type of person, <laughs> fast talking guy. That's, that's what I am. Cool. Yeah. You know, sure. it's got it down to a T, uh, <laughs> <we're> ever, <laughs> me true. and the casting directors are on the same page. Um, but uh, did, did you struggle with sort of finding your type at first or because you had that business mindset, did you sort of like um, have it down pat from the start? I, I think I understood that my type wasn't necessarily what I wanted it to be, but that mm. I, I would need to embrace that mm. for a while. Yeah. You know, I think Oprah says like, do what you have to do until you can do what you want to do. <laughs> mm. So um, I, I, I would play very sexual roles mm. all the time from the time I, and, and the other thing is, is, I have played the same age range for not kidding you, uh, 15 years. I've been called in for the same age range. Like, I guess I matured early and then stopped. So um, I <laughs> have been playing the same age for way too long. And uh, typically I would be seen as like very sexual um, women. And that is not me personally, necessarily. Mm. Um, and so, what I realized though, was that because it wasn't me personally, I had no fear of being seen in like a negative light because of it, because anyone who knew me knew that I didn't lead with my sexuality. Mm -hmm. So it actually, I turned it into this like cool sort of thing where it was like, oh, okay, I have no blocks around this because mm -hmm. it's, it's not typecasting. So, and no one that I know is going to think that. So let me go all out because this is just going to be a fun way to kind of explore this. What got a little frustrating though, was that I am an intelligent human mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't want to be reduced to sexuality. Yeah. And, and as a, as a woman, I think that we're often given that, especially if we look a certain way, the industry wants to see us sexualized and mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with sexuality and, and with exploring that um, if you want to, but to, but to only be given those opportunities or to be mainly given those opportunities to play roles where the number one thing that, you know, the reason that character is in the script has something to do with their sexuality, that got really tiresome after a while. Um, and, and that, that isn't me not knowing my type or accepting my type. That's me wanting the industry to widen the type mm. for, for women, for young women, for women who look a certain way. And, you know, um, uh, it's, it's getting a little better. I think it's getting a little better. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what I have to say about, about type. And, and also I think I'll add, I, you know, we sort of talked about this briefly. 
I'm queer and I'm Iranian American. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't really know how you look a certain sexuality or a certain sexual orientation, but apparently I don't look it because I've never been cast as queer in however many years I've been doing this. Yeah. And I've also never been cast as Middle Eastern. And, you know, I have fair skin, I have blue eyes, but my dad is from Tehran. And so whether, whether I look the stereotype of what many, you know, Americans at least think is Middle Eastern, I am. So I think I would like to see, you know, um, these, these roles and these categories sort of broaden so that I can bring more of myself to roles, you know, or at least different flavors of what I could play. Yeah. It's such, well, well we can touch on both of those, um, but, you know, the queer representation has slowed, like the needle's been moving in the right direction. Sure. But it's also it's still not the sort of meaningful storytelling with mm -hmm. those types of roles. Mm -hmm. um, I was just talking about this with um, Troy Iwata. He was, um, as of now, when we're recording this, he was my latest episode to go up. And, um, you know, in, in the show that he's in on Dash and Lily, he is, um, he, he plays, a, is a gay character. Um, and, you know, is in a happy relationship. The story, his storyline is not about like, they didn't accept me. It's not about tragedy, mm -hmm. nor is it about like hypersexual sexualization because with queer characters, it's like one or the other. It's like, this is mm -hmm. about how they were thrown out of their home and how they right, overcame sure. adversity. And yes, sure. that happens a lot, but also yeah. some kids come out and they're embraced by their family, but those aren't the stories that we see for yeah. whatever reason. Right. I mean, my parents literally were just like, okay, great. What's for dinner? Like it's, yeah. you know, my, my parents don't care at all. And so, um, I mean, they care as in they, they, uh, affirm me and, and love me, but they don't make a big deal out of it. it yeah. It's just kind of a non-issue. So yeah, I mean, you're right. We need to see, we need to see all of the stories that exist. Mm. And we also need to see people who don't necessarily look the way that we may stereotypically, we like the collective, you know, consumer, yeah. um, see queer characters, because I don't think that that's really helping anyone no. to just yeah. show queer folks looking queer like what does that mean you know what right. i mean it's <laughs> that's yeah. uh, I, I don't know that that kind of bugs me no oh me too because uh, you know not every uh gay man is uh super feminine and flamboyant that, right and not every you know uh queer woman or, or, or queer person like they're especially with with um with bisexual characters they're usually mm -hmm. like because they're attracted to men and they can't keep their hands off. They want everyone that walks by. It's like the, mm -hmm. it's always hypersexualized. And it's so frustrating as a bisexual person. It's like, Same. Nope, that's not the case. And, and that's also not the case in life, right? Like right. I mean, maybe, maybe some bi folks are absolutely like, they want a lot of sex and that's right. great for them. But Go like off. there are many of us, like I'm, I'm really not like that. And, and, you know, uh, for me, it's, it's more about like, just being able to be attracted to a human being. Mm. And that has really nothing to do with, with their parts, you know? And yeah. so, um, yeah, I would love to see more bi characters, frankly, just more bi characters, <laughs> but, yeah. but then within that, you know, um, being represented in a way that's not like uh, cheating or that's yeah. not, you know, can't make up their minds or mm. these things don't help the stereotypes that, that bi folks already deal with. And, and bi folks already have a really high suicide rate and anxiety rate and, yeah. you know, already deal with, with not being accepted by the queer community or the straight community at times. And, and let's, let's help us out a little bit more than that, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's not so binary anywhere, right. but it used to be like, you're straight or you're not. And now right. it's like, nope, there's all of these other um, sort of identities that, that we've put out into the open that 
we want to see are represented, you know? Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk about your um, latest, I don't, I don't think it's your latest booking, but your latest uh, project. Um, sure. The Gift of Christmas. Yes. Um, so I yeah, watched... we actually shot it two years ago. <laughs> really? Okay. I, yeah. I was going to ask. Yeah, if that was uh, how, how long ago that was. Um, I know yeah. features can sometimes take forever to, yep. <laughs> to get done, depending on the budget and how quickly they can get everything yep. done. Um, so with that one, where did you guys film? Because I saw that I, I haven't seen the film itself, but I did see the trailer and I saw they were like, yeah, so we shot there. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we started shooting in Los Angeles. So I was flown out to LA and um, we had a few days there and then we shot, we basically mirrored the story and, and shot you know, a road trip basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the story, the, uh, my character and um, now my real life partner's character, that was fun. We fell in love while shooting. Really? Um, so, That's yep. So, <laughs> so yeah. our, our characters, um, you know, meet in LA and then they travel back to Kentucky, which is where they're both from. So in real life, uh, he's actually from Southern Indiana, which is right over the river and I'm yeah. from Louisville. So we, this was all very, you know, um, art imitating life. So Super we meta. took the road trip <laughs> across country. Yeah, it was wild. Um, <laughs> so we shot on the road and it was really fun. I mean, uh, I had never done a road trip movie. Mm. Um, and it was really cool, actually. The, the part that wasn't so cool is that I'm vegan and gluten-free and there were parts of America that we would stop in that like absolutely didn't know what that was. Yeah. So our director, Tom Whitus, was actually really, really cool about my, my dietary needs and would take me to grocery stores in big cities and let me fill up you know, a cooler or something <laughs> and kind of get my own crafty because yeah. you know, there was these places where I would just have, have like salad and, a, and, and fries for like three days in a row because that's all I could eat. But other than that, the uh, the road trip was really neat. It was it was really cool, and and you know um, we got to see some some beautiful sights. We shot in El Mapeus, which you know I mean I'm not terribly afraid of heights, but I mean I think it's in the trailer. If if you see the shot where we're just like overlooking a freaking canyon mm-hmm. and it's blizzarding, you know that was kind of scary, but also really beautiful. In what time of year did you guys shoot? We shot it around Christmas. Yeah, so okay. we shot it like uh, I guess it was the end of november through almost the end of december gotcha yeah. oh so it was pretty quick it was pretty quick yeah it was okay. pretty quick and um that was a, a challenge <laughs> <laughs> so it's a faith-based movie did you grow up religious at all like with your family no i didn't and you know that was actually something that i i wasn't super excited about because a lot of um a lot of faith-based films I think can, can be a bit toxic for folks. And so that was actually something that I was, yeah. I was kind of concerned about. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say and proud to say that I don't think that there's any toxicity in the film. It's really just the way that I look at it is it's telling the story of, of people who have a certain faith, you know, it's their mm-hmm. story, but there's no messaging in it, you know, that, that I felt was, was harmful. Um, no you know, I guess if, <laughs> if you no, I mean, you know, and, and it's not, um, yeah, the, the way that I see it is it's really just like, you'll, you'll hear about, you know, like them going to church and like checking on the person who missed their like Bible study group. But there's not that, um, that like harsh, like pressuring, you know, under undertone of it. And, and my character uh, kind of had walked away from her faith. And, mm-hmm. and so, and she doesn't necessarily, well, no, no spoilers. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I felt, I felt like it was a film that people, even if they weren't Christian 
could watch and enjoy and relate to, mm. even if they didn't relate to the faith-based part of it. And no, I wasn't raised a certain religion. Um, so my dad's, like I said, from Iran, my mom's from Louisville. And, you know, my dad was raised in like a Muslim country, but not necessarily Muslim. And my mom was raised in like a Catholic community, but not necessarily Catholic. So they came from, you know, um, different sort of ends of the spectrum. And mm. when I was young, they actually did something that I thought was really cool, which is give me a book uh, that was about the world religions. And mm. they said, here, educate yourself. And if you wanna go to a mosque, if you wanna go to a synagogue, if you wanna go to a church, we'll take you. And I really appreciated that um, because I, I think it, it allowed for me to think for myself. Um, so I thought that that was, was really lovely. That's beautiful. Uh, I grew up They're in a cool. very, yeah, yeah. Your parents sound super cool. Uh, can you adopt <laughs> me? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Majid and Debbie. Yeah. They, they like adopting my friends. So sure. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in like, my, my dad eventually became a pastor uh, oh, wow. and, and was super involved in, in the church growing up and whatnot. It's how I eventually became an actor was, you know, oh, very, wow. a very um, music heavy, um, Hispanic church. So the, the music gotcha. was really, it was a Spanish church as well. Um, so, you know, lots of music involved. It wasn't like, so in some churches they have like one hymn. It's like, nope, we've got like a 30 minute set of, of really, of really intense music. Um, and that led to like musical theater and all that stuff. But like, you know, growing up in, um, in a, a Christian household uh, and in a Christian family, you know, Christmas is always super faith-based and it's nice to hear that the, 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 you know, the gift of Christmas was faith adjacent, you know, in a way. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, I mean, you don't have preachy. to see it to see it. I mean, I don't know like where, where folks draw the line on that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like what, what could seem incredibly preachy to one person could seem like nothing to another, depending on how they grew yeah. up, depending on other films that they're exposed to. I mean, certainly compared to, certainly compared to films that I've seen and been really turned off from, uh, I don't think it's it's on that end of the spectrum. And I've had some friends watch it who aren't religious and maybe even have some issues with religion. And they were like, oh, I was really pleasantly surprised by that, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, there's certain lines that may make folks like uncomfortable if they, if they have, you know, an aversion to the Christian faith. But if you're coming at it sort of from a neutral standpoint, um, I, I think it's not, uh, it's not gonna like overpower the story. I, I personally don't think so. I was, I was glad of that, you know? Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, I, I like to, as much as I love Christmas, I am one to let Thanksgiving have its time. And then yes, Black Friday is when Christmas starts. <laughs> I heard Christmas music, I think around Halloween. And I was, oh, I was Lord. shocked. Yeah. We seem to start earlier and earlier. I mean, you know, it's COVID time. So whatever people need, if right. that makes yeah. them happy, <laughs> have your Christmas music, have it. Exactly. Uh, and thank God for movies like The Gift of Christmas coming out, coming out way before so people. Yeah, come out way before. And I think it may be, so we're on Amazon Prime Video. We may have other um, releases as it gets closer. I don't really know. Mm. So actors are not always the most in the loop on these things. Right. Yeah, no I'll one's updating out. you on. <laughs> put it on my Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you grow up in, in a family that is like super obsessed with Christmas at all or, or sort of? No, no. I mean, you know, my dad didn't grow up uh, even celebrating it, but mm. he says that he likes it when he gets presents. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> I like this Christmas. Um, but yeah, no, uh, no, we weren't obsessed with it. I mean, I think that we, I mean, we always celebrated it, you know, mm. but it wasn't like, 
you know, again, some folks, it depends where you are on the spectrum, right? right. It's like, I, I don't know what, what people will consider obsessed with Christmas. Like, you know, we didn't take family photos and put the, the family dog and antlers and send it out to everyone. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, we didn't do that. But yeah, we always celebrated and, and you know, we always, we always liked it. I mean, we have a really small family. So um, mm. my dad's like basically his whole side of the family virtually uh, is still in Tehran. So uh, our, my mom's side is, is really small. So, um, you know, now it's kind of nice because my partner's family, you know, I get to celebrate with them too. And, and they have mm. a really large family. So that feels a little bit more, more Christmassy to have a bunch of folks around. Yeah. Yeah, with with me, it's because you know, big Christian family, and my mom's like one of ten kids. My dad's one of six, yeah, so always big, big, big. Wow. Thing. Yeah. No, no, no. So I'm an only child, so um, that that sort of thing amazes me. I I say my partner's family because last Thanksgiving we went, and I think they had. I'll have to ask them, but I think they had 42 people at their Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Yeah. It, there were like rented tables. You know, I mean, it was just, it, it was wild. It was really cool for me coming from this tiny family, or at least, you know, my American yeah. family is tiny. It was really neat, but yeah, that's, that's fun. I mean, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's really neat to have a bunch of loved ones around. Mm. And is there anyone else uh, in the arts or, or creative in your family at all? No, not really. Um, you know, I mean, uh, on my mom's side, there were, there were some people who, who did it, um, but not necessarily on like a super professional level. Um, I think my grandmother had wanted to, she was really stunning and, and they had, I guess she'd been offered to go out to Hollywood. Um, and back then, I guess it was more like based on just the look, you know, I, I don't know that she was really acting even, even on like a community theater level. I don't think she was, but I think they really liked her look and, and she had a beautiful voice. Um, and I sing a tiny bit in the film as well. Um, and so, uh, so I sing too. And, and so she had a really beautiful voice and, and a great look and they wanted to take her out there and her parents said no. Mm. And then I think that she wanted to be a doctor and her parents said that women didn't do that. And so then she oh decided goodness. to be a, yeah. So then she decided to be a fingerprint technician and it was really cool because she was the first female to be in that role. Um, I don't know if it was in the state of Kentucky or if it was actually in the U.S. I'm not sure. But I know she beat out like a, a gentleman from Washington or something. And it was a really big deal. And it was a very mm. male-dominated field. And she's fingerprinting hardened criminals, like murderers. She's, mm. she's doing there. And she had them saying, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and thank you, and please. <laughs> so, you know, she kind of found her way to, to be a badass and do what she wanted to yeah. do. But um, yeah. And then she said she, she almost became a nun and that was because she liked kids and beer. And she thought that that, that was a good fit. And then she met my grandfather and decided that wasn't right for her. So, you know, a little bit, but, um, yeah. but not really. My, my dad can't, can't match pitch or even like find a four, four beat on a song. Oh, so, okay. um, Got yeah, it. he's, he's like there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all, we all know a couple of people that, yes, you know, yeah. They can't clap. They're, they're clapping on the offbeat. And we're like, what are yeah. you doing? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so I want to talk a bit about your nonprofit uh, organization, sure. Healing Tree. So how did that 
come about? How did you? Um... Yeah, I mentioned that I deferred my acceptance to college and that my life took another turn. So, or a different turn um, in my late adolescence, you know, we've talked about my parents a little bit. I had a really nice upbringing, really lovely uh, humans raised me and I'm very grateful for them. Um, but in my late adolescence, my life uh, took a turn and it was due to really severe abuse. Um, and there's kind of a concept, a misconception that, you know, you have to have been raised with abuse to be a victim of it later in life, or that, you know, certain types of people are more likely to be abused. And really what I've learned, um, not just through my lived experience, but through research um, and hearing from other folks is that, especially if the abuser is really skilled, especially if it's like a sociopath, for instance, um, oftentimes the, the people that they seek out are actually very um, self-assured, very confident, uh, successful, driven. They have a lot of really strong qualities. And I think it's because if you have that sort of um, sick type of mind where you wanna destroy another person, you want to destroy another person. Mm -hmm. You don't want to abuse someone who is just gonna, you know, uh, do whatever you want from day mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Right. You, it's kind of sick, but you get off on the, on the breaking down of a human. Yeah. So, um, I, I went through some severe abuse in my late adolescence, um, at the hands of a, of a roommate actually. And, um, it, it, it completely altered my life in every way by the end of it. You know, I'll, I'll let people look up healing tree if they want to know kind of the whole story, um, healing tree, nonprofit.org. Um, but you know, by the end of this two year scenario, basically I was a shell of myself. I mean, I, um, was physically even unrecognizable. Like my hair was falling out my eyes, like the irises even got darker. I was Mm -hmm. emaciated. I was you know, in a state of what's called 24 hour flashback. So we hear about flashbacks, you know, we hear about PTSD, like for uh, war veterans, oftentimes we hear PTSD and we hear about, you know, sounds like a lot, like fireworks triggering. Well, because of the nature of the abuse, um, it was actually cultic in nature. And so everything was a trigger because by the end of it, pretty much every item was, was forbidden, whether it was my books on a shelf or art on, on the walls or secular TV or music or, you know, makeup or going outside or going to an acting class or eating certain foods, everything Mm. was, was filled with shame. And so my flashbacks were constant because when I got back into the real world where all of these normal life things are surrounding me, all of it had this connotation from the abuse. And so I was stuck in this this constant flashback state. Um, I was, I had psychogenic seizures. I was misdiagnosed as epileptic. Uh, It was really bad. And Mm. it, um, had I not gotten proper treatment, sadly, I would have probably stayed in this really sick state and been misdiagnosed as any number of mental illnesses. You know, thank God I was given the CPTSD diagnosis, but frankly, I could have been diagnosed as bipolar, borderline, schizophrenic, almost anything, DID, anything. Right. And so, um, basically, I learned, I, I got proper help, firstly. Uh, thanks to my mom, again, shout out to my parents for being amazing, uh, who did honestly just around the clock research and, and just didn't sleep for like yeah. literally years. Um, you know, I mean, obviously a little bit of sleep, but not normal sleep for years. She found, you know, a trauma-focused provider. And so basically I got the type of treatment that engaged the part of my brain that's injured during trauma. So, you know, we hear about talk therapy, CBT is, is really popular and that engages our cognitive brain. The part of my brain that I'm using to talk to you, the part of your brain you're using to listen and take in new information. And that part of our brain actually goes offline during trauma. So it doesn't really make much sense that that's our first line of defense against a variety of mental illnesses, because what we, what we know from the trauma field is that, you know, a lot of mental illness is actually from trauma. And that, 
that's not necessarily acknowledged in this diagnostic book, but that is acknowledged within the trauma field with huge studies like the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and frankly, I think with common sense. Um, and so what, what I learned was that with proper treatment that actually engaged the part of my brain that was injured, like for instance, say you throw out your back and you go to physical therapy and they work out your legs and you're like, well, I'm not really getting better. Well, yeah, because they're not working out the correct part of your body. Right. That happens all the time with talk therapy. You may get a little better. You may manage your symptoms. You may have improvements, but you're still having things come up as opposed to moving memories from short to long-term memory, discharging that traumatic energy, processing it, and no longer having those symptoms. So I was given proper treatment and it still took about five years. It took me five years of really intensive work um, to make a full recovery. I have not had my diagnosis or any symptoms for over six years. And, you know, that's really kind of rare. And what I learned throughout this time was just like anyone that I knew virtually who had, I mean, we're talking anything, addiction, behavioral problem, you know, from ADHD to alcoholism, to obesity, to social anxiety disorder, to an eating disorder, to, you know, the list goes on. They had also told me some story of abuse and trauma, but their therapists weren't telling them that they had trauma. They were telling them they had a genetic predisposition, a chemical imbalance, and that they would be like that for the rest of their lives. And what I was being told was, it's about what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. And you may have a chemical imbalance, sure. Chemicals change all the time. You may even have a genetic predisposition, sure. But, but epigenetics says that genes are turned off and on by life experiences. Mm-hmm. So just the fact that we know that neuroplasticity is real, and it means that our brains can rewire into adulthood, that lets us know that healing is possible. Regardless of how the system is set up, which I believe is, is a lot about profit and a lot about you know profiting off of people staying sick, but regardless of how the system is set up, neuroscientifically, we know that our brains can rewire. So you know, when I learned all of this and when I learned that so many folks around me were hurting and not being given the same opportunity that I was to get well, um, I got really angry, frankly. And I started thinking about, you know, I had every privilege and I was, or virtually every privilege, and, and I was still struggling really, really hard. And so I started looking at folks experiencing homelessness or houselessness, and I started experiencing, you know, I started looking at folks experiencing, uh, you know, being, being in the foster system or in the prison system. And I thought, well, if it's this hard for me to get proper help, and, you know, I have parents who are supportive, and I have, you know, insurance to pay for it, what about everyone else? And what about folks who've dealt with this since they came out of the womb? You know, they've dealt with horrific abuse. And I just got really fired up that I really learned that the whole system was just not really set up to get us well. And I thought this is behind our suicide rates. This is behind our addiction rates, our our domestic violence rates, all of these things. And even huge issues like climate change and systemic racism. How are we going to get people to care about these huge problems if they are so in their own minds and just trying to survive that they can't even look outside of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just thought, I've got to volunteer with some organization that's doing something about this because uh, I would find these great like mental illness organizations over here or these great, um, you know, this specific type of abuse, like say domestic violence or child abuse or trafficking. Um, But I didn't find, or even trauma organizations that would do direct treatment in a certain area. But I didn't find some national org that was raising awareness about trauma just as a whole doesn't really matter the context, just we've all had some experience of it. Of course, different ends of the spectrum, of course, marginalized folks experience it more often and and more severely. But the truth is, is that trauma is a fact of human life. And so, and and it, it does affect all of us differently, but it does affect us. 
And if we don't heal, we will pass it on and we will, you know, generation after generation, it will get worse. And so um, really what we're all about is making healing from abuse and trauma, not just coping with the symptoms, the new normal. And we do it through providing trauma-focused resources and education. And then we also produce and partner with relevant film, television, and theater to the social change necessary to create this healing movement. So basically I just, when I couldn't find an org to volunteer with that I thought was fixing the problem, um, I couldn't help but start one. And luckily my acting manager stood by me while I sort of took a break to, to do this thing that really felt like it was necessary for my soul. The short film that you produced, Silk, how did yeah. that come about? Basically, um, I started doing speaking engagements at colleges, uh, talking about red flags of abuse and trauma. And what mm. I noticed was that um, specifically women, young women, when I would get to the slide on emotional abuse and signs of it, uh, not kidding, I would see literal jaws drop. And what I learned was, and, th and then after the q and I'd still have a line of people coming up to yeah. me to ask questions. And a lot of the questions were, is it abusive if? What does this look like? And we would do surveys and we'd ask them, what did you learn? And the thing that they learned the most over several engagements was gaslighting. Now, mm -hmm. gaslighting sets the stage for all other forms of abuse, basically, because if you can get a victim to doubt their, their perception of reality, you can do just about anything to them. So gaslighting is often kind of a, a kind of like phase one, if you will, of, of abuse, yeah. because it sets the stage for the victim to accept other forms of abuse because their equilibrium is so off balance and they can't trust their gut. So um, we realized that we needed to give folks some sort of teaching tool that was beyond a PowerPoint presentation and, and a talk back because that was, that was really helpful, but they still wanted more. And so um, the 1944 movie Gaslight is where the term gaslighting is from, but it's about a gentleman using, well, not a gentleman, a man using um, gas lamps, turning them up and down in the house and making his new wife believe that she's seeing things and making her doubt her perception. That's what the term is from. So mm. Kids these days don't relate to that. They don't know what a gas lamp is probably, or they don't care. <laughs> um, and so what do we do, right? And I was cast in a play with this amazing actor, uh, singer, uh, I'm sorry, actor and, and dancer and aerialist. And uh, her name was Krista Marie Jackson. And uh, she was dancing in the play and her dancing was amazing. But then I saw some of her aerial clips. She was Zendaya's body double for The Greatest Showman. So that mm. gives you some idea of her level of aerial work. Yeah, She was so brilliant. And I just thought, I'm producing this film on gaslighting. Is there any way that I can use her talent and showcase her talent? Because it's just so amazing. And then when I was interviewing co-writers, because I had never written professionally in this way, um, and I, I wanted a co-writer, I was speaking to this, this um, gentleman, David Cottle, who's an award-winning playwright, who I, we ended up bringing onto the project. And I said, you know, is this just absolutely insane? What if we, we centered it on an aerialist and her lighting designer. And what if the lighting designer was messing with the lights in her act? And that was sort of our wink to the old movie Gaslight. Mm. Tell me if this is nuts. And he loved it. And he, the fact that he embraced it actually really gave me the faith to do it. Mm. So um, we basically sent her on this aerialist and her new lighting designer boyfriend who is messing with the lights in her show and obviously employing other forms of abuse like projection and blame shifting and love bombing and all these other things, right? Um, and so we shot it uh, last year and we shot it. Um, I was very proud to, to, to say that we shot it with a crew of 75% women, many of whom were queer and people of color. Um, and our cast is diverse as well with a, a 
queer uh, black woman in the lead and with a uh, trans Hispanic uh, person in a supporting role. And there's only four roles. It's pretty, pretty small cast. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really just tell this story in an entertaining, intimate way. And it doesn't look like an after school special <laughs> because we have, you know, Garcia from Tales of the City opposite like Ellen Page and Laura Linney in it. And, you know, we have Fran Kranz from Cabin in the Woods and Louisa Cross from Billions and, and the flick on stage. And, you know, our director was John Magaro. So he's in Carol. He's in the big short. He's opposite Ellen Page in the Umbrella Academy. He's mm. in the new, um, the Many Saints of Newark. We, I was, a, I had a very small role in a film called Not Fade Away, which John was the star of. It was David Chase's uh first feature after The Sopranos. Uh, it had a theatrical release thanks to Paramount. And so John and I stayed friends. And, and one day again, we were just having coffee and I said, you know, is this a wild idea to do this film and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was just sort of picking his brain. And, and frankly, you know, he'll hear this maybe one day and be like, oh, you, you wanted me to do it. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I kind of hope he says, let me direct it. But I was yeah. really just picking his brain. I would have been fine if he didn't. Um, but he said, you know, you don't have to hire some DGA director. Why don't you just get like a name actor that you trust to do it? And I was like eating my whatever, you know, snack and drinking my coffee, just silently waiting. And he was like, you know, like I, I could do it. I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we just had this amazing team, you know, I mean, yeah. like the woman who did our wardrobe uh, did it for the prom on Broadway. And like, we just, we just had like an outpouring of, of love and talent to create this film. Um, yeah. So now we're taking it virtually to, to colleges um, and doing these workshops built around it. And then it'll hit the festival circuit next year, hopefully. Amazing. That's so amazing. I've, you know, I've, there's so many different, um, issues and, and topics and, and um, things that people overcome in life that they then want to see somewhere like, oh, so I'm not the only one that's, that's gone through this or like, oh, someone else gets it. I'm not the only, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one that's going through this. I, I can't wait to see it. I hope that it gets, you Thank know, put you. up somewhere. At, at some yeah. point um, it sounds amazing. Really. Con congratulations on that. Thank you. It's a Thank huge, you so much. Of course. That's, um, you know, it's not easy to, to just even to just put something together to produce something and, um, you know, to, to collaborate with such a team that was very behind it and, and, you know, not just doing it to be busy. It's like, no, they, it sounds like they really believed in the project, you know? Um, so again, congrats. I, I hope I could see it someday. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, we will, um, you know, I'll, I'll put it up on my social media and everything. Once mm. we, once we head to festivals, we wanted to wait, you know, we, we didn't want like a virtual premiere. Um, mm. so we, we wanted to wait. It's also a little hard, you know, we, we had our kind of school cut, but we were just still making the final tweaks on our festival edit. Um, you know, we're kind of getting it, getting it just right before we, we yeah. send it to festivals, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And it was really empowering, you know, earlier when we were talking about roles that, you know, uh, or types, you know, and I was kind mm -hmm. of complaining about being seen a certain way, you know, it was really nice to be in the producer role and get to say, we're going to do this right. And mm -hmm. Krista had spoken to me just as, as an actor and as a friend and said, you know, she was seen as, uh, you know, not black enough or too black, or can you straighten your hair? Or, you know, what are you? Or, you know, whatever these comments are that are really toxic and, and racist and wrong um, that so many folks in the industry have heard from casting. And it was really nice to be in a producer role and be like, I want you to be exactly who you are and who you want to be in this role. And, and that mm -hmm. felt really nice and it, it felt really good to, you know, um, not try to do like what the industry wanted and not try to 
fit some sort of mold that some network needed us to know. Like yeah. we just made a story that we believed in and with a cast and crew that we believed in. And, you know, everyone was so happy on set. Like everyone was so just really enjoyed themselves. And I remember when we had some um, background actors come in, you know, I, I was the, the, you know, lead producer and, and the co-writer and, I was holding doors open for, for folks coming in and I was getting the director coffee. And I remember, you know, asking someone, Hey, how'd you find out about us backstage or, you know, who, who brought you in? I want to thank everyone and get to know them. And they answered the question. And then they said, what about you? Are you an intern? And I was like, no, I'm, but I didn't <laughs> mind the question because I thought yeah. that actually makes me happy that, that I'm leading this project with service. And that was actually really affirming to me. So mm. But yeah. I, I, I'm, it was exhausting. I'm still recovering. <laughs> You're still recovering. <laughs> I feel like I am. Like it's producing is when you do it right. Like it's so all consuming and uh, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And you know, because you were so involved, it was even more than what it normally would be. Cause you know, you hear of, of producers already having a lot to do. And because you were doing all of these other things, it's like, you know, you weren't just sitting in the chair behind the directors staring at the monitors and, you're like, nope, we're going to make sure everything no. is running smoothly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I was like running to, to, you know, um, office depot when we needed like the thing for the scene with the computer. And I was like in the heat, right. You know, I mean, no, I was doing, you know, all the stuff, which was fun and really cool. And, you know, it was like going to film school, but just by doing it. Um, so unfortunately we're, we're hitting the end of our time. Um, but I always like to finish with a little rapid fire round of, of questions. We've got a couple holiday questions thrown in there. Um, Alrighty, so 90 seconds on the clock and we're going to start with Ooh. the most difficult question. Coffee or I'm tea? Nervous. Uh, tea. Pumpkin spice latte or peppermint mocha? Ugh. Peppermint <laughs> mocha. <laughs> Theater or screen acting? Theater. Drama or comedy? Drama. Hero or villain? Hero. TV or film? Mm, TV. Uh, your most recent binge watch. Oh my gosh, I haven't binge watched almost anything. Uh, uh, the Vow, I watched The Vow recently, but I'm still not done. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> uh, your favorite Christmas movie? Um, uh, I love The Holiday and I love It's a Wonderful Life for a classic. Mm. If you weren't an actor, what would you do for a living? Mm, want to be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, worst side job that you've had? Um, I, I've been really fortunate. I, I haven't really had many. Um, I, I hostessed for like three months or something and, and mm. it's just not for me. <laughs> I, nothing's really that terrible though. I don't know. I've been fortunate. Uh, what role did you have the most fun playing? Oh gosh. I don't know. I've been doing this for a long time. I <laughs> probably something like a long time ago that I, that I don't even remember off the top of my head right now. Oh, you know, yeah. Belle, Belle and Beauty and the Beast. Mm. Love it. We had a big uh, amphitheater, 2,000 seats, and it was, it was beautiful. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's the role that got away? Oh, I, you know, I don't like to think that way because then I'll, just get, then I'll just get sad. But I will say the role that I want to play, I'm looking at my vision board right now. The role mm. that I want to play when I am old enough is uh, Martha and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And if I don't oh. get that, it will have gotten away, but I'll get it. <laughs> and uh, last question. In 10 words or less, what advice would you give to a young actor? Get to know yourself as a person. Care for yourself and it will help your acting. 
And that is it for this week's episode of Actors with Issues with special guest Marissa Gavami, who you can follow on Instagram at Marissa Gavami. That's Marissa with two S's, G-H-A-V-A-M-I. And you can check out her organization's website at HealingTreeNonprofit.org and follow us at Actors with Issues. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening and catch new episodes every Friday on all podcasting platforms. This is Juan Ayala signing off.